It's your boy, and welcome to episode 63 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute. Rate and review us. Give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Uh, hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. Took it pretty easy myself. Stayed here. Hopefully a lot of you did also. I know there's been a lot of talk about people traveling for the holidays, and there's been a big backlash against people doing that, and uh, probably for good reason. <clears throat> COVID cases are up, and uh, I guess to quell the tide, um, we're wanting people to uh, uh, to stay in. Uh, whew. But yes, much needed break. Uh, for me the last week, I feel like, uh, went out of town. Sorry, I have to sneeze here. Excuse me. Job bless. Oh, sorry about that. Um, maybe I have COVID. Actually, a couple things happened this week. Uh, went out of town with my girlfriend for two days. Uh, we went down to the Santa Cruz area, uh, to a place called Aptos, which is kind of near Santa Cruz, Capitola, if you know, the west coast of California. Very cool area. We've stayed down there before. We spent, probably probably a couple years ago, we spent um, at least a night or two down there uh, while we hiked around the Santa Cruz area. And before, we didn't really like Aptos. At least when we were there, we stayed at Airbnb down there that was pretty remote. Um, And I don't know, just, I don't know, didn't really stick out in my mind. So... Um, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. We went down there though, and we ended up having probably, I mean, I've stayed at probably a dozen Airbnbs, if not more. Um, and my experience is, I don't know, it's varied. I've had great stays. I've had, you know, some awful stays, probably more good than bad, honestly, but this was probably the best Airbnb, Airbnb we've ever stayed at. And when we first showed up, I was a little skeptical. It was kind of, I don't know if rural is quite the word for it, but it was kind of an area that was kind of out of the way a little bit, kind of remote. And, uh, you know, we're kind of staying on this person's property. They have a lot of woods around them. And it just looks like more of a conservative area. That's what Aptos feels like. It's just more of a conservative area than the Bay Area where I live. And we show up and um, kind of an older couple... Uh, who own the property. And the woman who greets us is not wearing a mask. Her partner, husband, presumably, I'm not sure, uh, who stays on the property with her and was kind of working around the area, kind of moving some lumber around, it looked like, was also not wearing a mask. Well, a woman shows us the property, does not wear a mask the entire time, um, and me and my girlfriend are wearing a mask. So, you know, it's not, (laughs) I'm not saying it's confrontational, but it feels that way. You know, when you're wearing a mask and the other person doesn't address the issue, doesn't put on a mask themselves, they're they're kind of broadcasting that, you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just interpreting it myself, but it feels like they're broadcasting to me that it's not something they're taking very seriously. And maybe that makes sense. If you're living in a place like Aptos, where there's just not a large population, or maybe you kind of stay on your property and you don't get out much, like maybe, maybe that makes perfect sense not to wear a mask. But I just felt as the host of a property that people are staying at, who are already probably feeling apprehensive, you know, about renting a place where other people have been recently. It just, it's, I don't know if it's the right, me- I, don't, I don't know if that's the message you want to be sending to somebody who's running your property. But anyway, uh, she's not wearing a mask. And I felt a little unsettled uh, by that. But I will say, it ended up being the best Airbnb experience we've ever had. You know, the, the property owners had their own uh, house. They had a big outdoor area that was, uh, I don't know, it was really nice. They had an outdoor jacuzzi and a sauna, uh, a little outdoor kitchen, uh, an outdoor shower um, for our unit. The place that we stayed at was just a single room, which was like just a room enough for a bed and a bathroom. Um, and then <clears throat> had an outdoor kitchen and shower for us to use in... I wasn't really sure what to expect. I was kind of anticipating it feeling like a very rustic kind of uh, couple nights for us, but it was really, it was really awesome. It was really comfortable and did a lot of great hiking in that area. There's a, there's a park called the forest of Nicene marks, um, which was just beautiful. And it's one of the things I love about California. And if I ever left, I think I would really miss, which is, you know, no matter what you like, if you like the woods, if you like the beach, 
it has, we have everything here in the Bay Area. And within an hour, you have everything else you would need. And, you know, around us, when we go hiking, you get a lot of the sort of California, you know, Golden Hill type environment. There's some wooded areas, but more often than not, it's kind of, things feel pretty much open. Um, for the last couple of months, my girlfriend and I have been walking the Bay Trail. So there's, a, you know, there's basically about 500 miles of walkable trail that basically goes around the entire Bay Area. And we've started from where we live, which is sort of the Oakland-Berkeley area. <clears throat> and we've made our way north. And we've spent the last couple of weekends kind of around this area called Carquinez and Crockett and um, uh, Benicia, Benicia and Martinez, this kind of you know, there's basically two bridges. There's the Carquinez Bridge and then the Benicia-Martinez Bridge. And we've kind of spent our time in between that area, if you want to look at it on the map. But, um, you know, very sort of almost central coast. I know they say the barrier is kind of northern California, but it's, I don't know, to me it feels more central. But that type of environment. Like when I was a kid, I read a lot of Steinbeck, uh, the sort of gold, rolling golden hills type areas that you find around Salinas and stuff. Well, that's also pretty typical of parts of the Bay Area also. Um, when you go kind of a little more south, even just as far south as like Aptos or Santa Cruz, the woods become almost Pacific northwestern e type woods where, um, you know, when we're in the, the um, um, Forest of Nicene Marks, it's just very mossy and green and it had rained recently. And it's just, it just feels like you're in a completely different environment. And that's, that's just one of the things I love about the Bay Area, which is no matter where you're at, you can get to somewhere else and feel like you're in a different environment. Um, and it was just, I don't know, it was, be it was beautiful. Uh, there's this one area called uh, the Land of Medicine Buddha. Um, there was like a Buddhist monastery and they have this private for it's part of forest of Nicene Marks, which is a state park, but, um, you know, it seemed like private property within that park <clears throat> that was owned by this Buddhist monastery. And as you're going around, you just see these sort of Tibetan flags randomly along the hike. And it was just beautiful. And I, I know it's easy to project this onto the space because it's attached to a Buddhist monastery, but even just walking into the woods, some places just have sort of a spiritual vibe and, I was also kind of reflecting on this area because as I'm there, you know, we're staying at a home and a property that's a little more rural. It's not, uh, you know, it's sort of a small town outside of even Santa Cruz, which is itself is not a, a big place. You may have heard of it. It may be a place with a reputation, but it's not a big city. And being in a place like Aptos, which you've almost certainly never heard of unless you're from around here, you kind of feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. Or maybe nowhere isn't the right word, but, you know, as I get older, I realize a part of me moving out to the Bay Area was that I wanted to live in a place that felt cool, you know? I moved out here to live in San Francisco, and even though I've never lived in San Francisco, I've certainly spent a lot of time in San Francisco. You know, I played a lot of music in San Francisco, um, but I never lived there. But I, I wanted to live in, a, in the Bay Area where it felt like things were going on that felt cool. Um, and it wasn't like I'm from a small town necessarily, but... You know, I wanted to live in a, in a place that felt consequential, you know, a place of some consequence where it felt like things were happening. Um, and I think that's cool. I think, you know, I don't want to say what everyone should do, but I think, uh, you know, if you do want to do that in your life, it, it would not be a bad idea. But as I've gotten older, um, especially as you think about, well, where am I going to settle down? Where am I going to buy a house? If I do, how much, can, you know, how far will my money go? Because when it comes to the Bay Area, you're just not going to find a lot for cheap. You know, uh, you're going to be hard-pressed to find, you know, a decent home that's not knocking on the door of a million dollars. You know, and you're not going to get a palatial estate either. Um, you know, whereas my brother and his wife, they have a, a great home uh, somewhere else in the country. I'm not going to say where, but they have a, a great home somewhere else in the country that's not as expensive as the Bay Area. And it's a fucking beautiful home. And it's not free, but it's also not, um, you know, it's nowhere near a million dollars. Not even near half that. But, um, but the point is, is as I'm there in Aptos, I'm thinking, wow, this house is great. You know, they have a hot tub for us to use. Um, you know, they have some square footage. They have a great, you know, their entire backyard is just this wooded valley. And it's just a five-minute walk away from the beach. And you just think, 
why the fuck do I live in the Bay Area where I play? I pay an arm, and by the way, I get off cheap. You know, the place I live at is it's not exactly rent controlled, but the rent hasn't gone up in about 12 years, and that's why I'm stuck here. Um, but you just think, why do you pay so much to live in a place, especially now that we're in COVID times, where there's just not much going on? Why would you pay as much as you do to live in a place where your money just doesn't go that far? And I, you know, as I see more places, as I spend time in other places, and as I really think, you know, how do I enjoy spending my time? Which for the most part means reading. (laughs) You know, outside of work, I like to take it easy. I like to stay inside. Um, Or even if I want to get out, you know, there's plenty of other places that you can live, like Aptos, say, where there's great parks, there's beautiful hiking. Um, There were things we saw on this hike that were even more beautiful than stuff that you see out uh, in the Bay Area. And by the way, even if you wanted to get to the Bay Area, that's only an hour drive away from some other places that you could live and buy some property where your money goes a lot further, where you can actually get a some property in a house, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I don't know. It was just a great little vacation for us. And it was just nice to sleep in, wake up, go for a beautiful hike, uh, come back. You know, we grilled, out, we grilled some chicken on this in this uh, outdoor kitchen that they had for us. Got in the hot tub, you know, they had a little fire pit, build a fire, make some s'mores, and just kind of read for a couple hours before going to bed. And it was just a really rejuvenating couple nights that we spent. Um, uh, let's see, had to come back. I had to finish my uh, UC applications, applying for that, which, um, you know, it's a process. One, it's not free. I mean, I applied to probably like seven different UCs and you have to pay like $70 per application. So you do the math, not, not free to apply for colleges. But, um, uh, I don't even know if I mentioned on this podcast, but, uh, I already got sort of pre-accepted to UC Davis, which is fine. Um, you know, that's a good safety. Uh, I have my site on other schools, but, um, but it was just good to have the application done officially. So, <clears throat> you know, you have to do these personal insight questions or essays, which everyone has to do. And uh, I think I did mention that. I got some good feedback from my brother and stuff. Um, but it was good to just have that done. Uh, the next night, my girlfriend and I were supposed to do two nights of camping up on Mount Diablo, which we've gone to before. Um, but it actually turned into a little bit of a bust. We got out there. The weather was awful. It was super windy. And uh, basically, the minute I stepped out of the you know the truck that we have, uh, the temperature was just super cold. It was super windy. We had a horrible time getting the tent up. And even when we did, when we got inside the tent, it was just like you didn't want to leave. You know, it was so windy up there that all you wanted to do was stay in the tent. And even then, you just knew that you were sort of settling in for a long night and... Um, me and my girlfriend kind of had to look at each other and say, uh, do we really want to hack it out here for two days or would we be a lot more comfortable just packing it in, driving back down the mountain, (laughs) uh, going home, getting some pho and watching, uh, the queen's gambit on Netflix tonight. And, uh, it was kind of an emotional moment for my girlfriend, but we ultimately decided to pack it in. And, um, uh, I will say, though, it actually kind of turned into a, I don't know, kind of a charming way for us to spend our time, which is, uh, you know, we went back to my place. You know, I've mentioned I lived in the backyard of this house. The people who live in the house in front of me were gone, so we kind of had the whole back backyard to ourselves. And we basically just camped out at home. You know, we have the tent, we have all the materials, we had a little, uh, my neighbors, I should say, have a, um, what do you call it, like a fire bowl? Uh you know, a little fire pit, but you can move it around. It's not fixed in one spot. So, uh, had the wood. We basically just made a campfire and, uh, put, literally pitched the tent in the backyard and, uh, kind of had our own backyard camping. So, um, not what we planned, but in some ways it was actually kind of more special. And, uh, yeah. And so here we are, you know, back on the cusp of vacation being over. And, uh, back to the swing of things. Uh, I did take my girlfriend for two COVID tests. Uh, she's about to take off for, uh, the East coast for a month and a half to spend some time with her family. 
And in preparation for that, you know, she wants to fly with a clear conscience. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of conflicted. I'm a little conflicted about it only because, you know, when she made these plans, um, I think we were feeling a little bit more confident about flying. But with good reason, I'm not going to say like it, it doesn't like I don't understand where it's coming from. But obviously, in the last couple of weeks, as the holidays have approached, you know, you, there's this whole wave of people on social media, mostly who are, you know, kind of shaming people for traveling. Right. Cancel your plans. Stay home. Don't leave the house. And uh, I get that. I'm actually behind that for the most part. But I think as my girlfriend has seen that, it's kind of made her second guess her plans to sort of go out to the East Coast and be with her family for a month and a half. Um, But I don't know. You know, as the date comes closer, you know, you're sort of faced with the reality of that situation. Um, You know, it's something I'm considering more seriously myself. But um, I don't know. We'll have to see how it pans out, right? We can revisit this decision when my girlfriend... uh, lands on the East Coast and and learns she has COVID and is having to deal with it by herself, I guess. But um, I don't know. I think, you know, going ahead of the holiday, leaving at the beginning of the month, um, rather than flying around December, what, 20th, 23rd, uh, I think you can dodge the bullet. And then in terms of coming back, you'll just have to see what happens after the holidays. I know a lot of people are going to fly. Um, I think the sad part too is the, I know you, I mean, you know, the airline industry is really just going to try to maximize profits. Uh, leading up to the trip, my girlfriend tried to do a lot of research in, you know, the airlines have really gone back and forth on how they're going to operate over the holidays. And I think they've kind of moved forward with certain plans and just kind of gauged the public reaction to them. And if there's not too big an outcry, they sort of move forward with things. But I think at one time, American Airlines was like, well, up until this date, we'll, we, we, we won't book the center seat of the, air, uh, of the airplane. But after a certain date, we're just going to open it up. And I think there was a large enough outcry that they said, okay, okay, we won't do that. But it is sad to think that even at a time like this, um, and what, what can I say? I guess it's because they want to stay afloat, right? But it's, you know, there's that weird, I don't know, there's that weird interplay between wanting to be safe, feeling accountable to the public, and in some ways being, um, I don't know, a gatekeeper of public safety, but also wanting to maximize profits. I mean, who knows how many tens and maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars the airlines are out of since the, the COVID pandemic hit. But it's like they know if there's any time to sort of make any kind of cash grab, it's going to be around the holidays. And I know there's a lot of talk of you know people saying, don't travel, stay at home. But look, we saw how the election played out. We know we, we've heard the discourse amongst ourselves and on social media over the last year or so. We all know there's about 50% of us that believe this whole thing is a fucking hoax and are going to fly regardless, right? And actually, I mean, I don't pretend to know, but people have said that it's, you know, the safest place is actually going to be on the plane. You know, I don't know this to be true, but one thing you hear is that the airplane itself is actually pretty safe. The air circulation, the air ventilation, whatever it is. It's really going through the airport. Um, but I don't know. Is it more dangerous than being at the supermarket? <sighs> Who can say? I guess it depends on how well policed it is. Right? If you're flying into Dallas, is that O'Hare? Actually, Chicago O'Hare. But if you're flying into Dallas, you know maybe a lot of people aren't wearing masks. If you fly into SFO, are more people wearing masks? I don't know. Um, But we'll see. I don't know. I'm feeling reasonably optimistic that my girlfriend will be safe when she flies. And I don't know. I'm going to miss having her away for a month and a half. But, you know, being with family is important for some people. You know, for me, less so. Um... But I don't know. I, I've seen my girlfriend with her family, and for her, it's a big deal. I mean, in some ways, that's kind of been the thing about our relationship that I, I, or I should say, one of the things about our relationship that I enjoy the most, which is, you know, depending on who your partner is, you can really get insight into a life that's very different from your own. And uh, not to speak ill of my family, but, you know, we're not the closest. Um, you know, I've... <laughs> uh, 
you know, I just don't see many members of my family on, on a regular basis. And, um, and that's okay. It doesn't bother me that much, but it's, it's just nice to be with someone who comes from a dairy, a, a family that's very different from mine. And it's not something I really understood in a lot of people. You know, I, I hear about this from friends or something, you know, family is very important and they miss their family, et cetera, et cetera. But until you really see it up close, you just kind of see what different family dynamics can be like. You know, and I've traveled with my girlfriend and when we go to see her family, I, I very much see how rejuvenating it is for her to be around her family, which is exceptional. Um... And I don't just mean exceptional good. I mean, it's exceptional. It's just not something I've experienced in my life a lot. Um, but you can feel her battery recharging from being around family. And it's also, you just see a different side of their personality. You know, the relationship we have with our partners is one thing. <clears throat> the way they interact with us is one thing. But especially if they have a functional family, to see who they are around their family is just very different. Um, and to just see their battery kind of recharging to be around their family, it's... You know, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. It's something I want for her. Uh, it's going to be hard having her gone for a month and a half, but... I don't know. I actually bumped into my neighbor, and his parents are actually flying. They're older. And so I think he's feeling a little more trepidatious about it because, you know, they're more at risk than my girlfriend is for flying. Um but he was genuinely concerned. But I think one thing he articulated, which I, I kind of understand now, you know, for some people, the risk is, or I, I guess I should say the, the impact on their mental health of not traveling and seeing their family is very considerable. And that, that's the part that feels weird for me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. Woo. <clears throat> sorry, man. Maybe I do have COVID. Um, you know, that's a weird thing for me to see because I just don't feel that. Um, I mean, I, I, I've said it before. I think there's a lot about the current pandemic that plays in my strengths. You know, I'm domesticated. I like staying at home. I don't need to be around other people all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, no hard feelings amongst my family, but um, we're not as close as others. And so it's okay for me to go a while without seeing them. But, um, you know, for my girlfriend and, and people like her, it really impacts them not seeing their family. And so I don't know. What do you tell people? Um I think the hard part is, you know, when we think about these things, if, if you're just a risk to yourself, I mean, you can do whatever you want, right? But the problem with the traveling is, you know, maybe you, you know, by virtue of you traveling, you're actually putting other people at risk. Um, thankfully, my girlfriend is responsible. I think, the whole, I think the only reason we're fucking talking about this is because I was talking about my girlfriend getting COVID tests. Um, but, you know, she's a good person. It's why I love her. You know, it's, it, for her, it's very important that she gets her COVID test results before she flies because she wants to know that she's safe. Um, you know, she's going to do what she can to protect herself. She's going to wear her mask. She, you know, she has one of these plastic face coverings that um, people have these days. So I, I'm, I'm honestly not worried about her safety. You know, but she wants to make sure that she's not going to be a danger to other people. So when she gets to the East Coast, she's actually going to quarantine for two weeks and stay by herself, which it, if I'm thinking about it is the thing I'm worried about the most for her. Um, I think that's going to be a difficult time for her. But um, yeah, we did two of these drive-through COVID testing sites. Uh, I haven't been tested myself, but uh, she booked two for herself. One was done through the county. One was done through her insurance provider. Um, so very different. One, you know, through the county, it's like the people who are facilitating it are clearly not... Um, uh, healthcare professionals. They're sort of community volunteers, which is also great, but also their attitude toward the whole thing is just a little bit different. But, um, uh, when we did the community based one, you basically administer the test yourself. You drive through this area, they hand you the testing kit in like a biohazard bag. You sort of swab your own nostril <clears throat> and then you sort of deposit it in this trash can at the end of the driveway. And ostensibly they just kind of go through the whole package and sort of test everything and reach out to everybody that way. But, uh, the one we did today, the second test that we took was through her uh, insurance provider and much more professional. They administer the test for you. Uh, kind of the same thing. You drive through this parking garage and uh, they have people in the hazmat suits looking like they're capturing E.T. or something, but they meet you at the side of your window and administer the test for you. But 
kind of touching actually. You know, you see there's 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 sort of a, a cast of people who are administering these tests, and um, uh, I sort of catch sight of one like sort of a youngish younger female uh, who's sort of wearing the hazmat suit and the glasses and stuff, but you can just kind of see it's a younger female. And I said, "Oh, she looks nice. I hope we get her." And thankfully we did, but it's. You know, I could tell my girlfriend was a little nervous. A lot of people talk about these COVID tests and they say it's pretty painful. You know, like they swab up your nostril and like people talk. It's, people say it feels like you're getting a fucking, uh, um, what the fuck's it called? Uh, uh, lobotomy. <laughs> like people feel like they're like, uh, almost like you're being mummified. You know, you read about mummification during your uh, Egypt sequence in fifth grade or whatever. And they talk about pulling the brains out with a hook through the nostril. Uh, that kind of thing. People talk about the COVID test like it's fucking um, Chinese torture or fucking Egyptian mummification, but you could tell she was pretty nervous, but they, they did both. They actually, they swab your throat and they swab your nostril. So, um, yeah, kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting experience, you know? It does show you that we're kind of living in interesting times. I mean, I know people are saying that a lot, but it's just one of those things when I think about like, you know, when I have kids uh, and who got, got, who knows what reality we'll be living in when I finally have kids. But if I ever do, you know, if they ask about what was it like during COVID, you know, you'll just have these memories, these, these things that you're just not really going to know how to explain. Oh yeah. We turned parking garages into drive through COVID testing sites. And um, I don't know, just bizarre stuff, like even traveling during COVID you know, staying at an Airbnb. Um, I don't know. It's just, I mean, obviously it's been a colorful experience, probably the understatement of the year, but, but, um, yeah, interesting nonetheless, especially as I apply for schools, I just keep thinking, you know, next semester, you know, my final semester at at a community college is going to be remote, sort of, uh, same as usual, but Jesus Christ, when I transfer to a four year, are we going to be back on site yet? Because I'm going to be spending, you know, fucking 10 times as much of my education. And if I'm not getting any classroom time, it's going to feel like quite a fucking ripoff. You know, it might as well, I might as well be going to fucking online college. You know, like what's that, what's that online college that you used to see advertised all the time? University of Phoenix or some shit like that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You just feel kind of like a sucker if you're paying... You know, I don't even want to say an amount, but let's say it's $10,000 a semester going to a UC and you're doing uh, remote classes, you know? (laughs) I mean, I'm kind of thinking as I fill out my UC application, I have to fill out, uh, you know, I have to uh, indicate the last high school I attended, which was fucking 20 years ago. But as I'm filling out the application, I can't really remember the exact dates. You know, when I was a sophomore in high school... I was going to a public school, but who knows how I convinced my parents of this, but me and my brother both decided, fuck this, man. Our buddy was going to this alternative high school, which was basically, uh, you show up for four hours a day, you do some work on the computer, you get a lunch break, and then you fucking jet. And um, it's all self-paced. You can work quickly, you can work slowly, but for whatever reason... My brother and I decided, yeah, we're, we want to do that <laughs> instead of going uh, to a legitimate school. And um, that was okay with our parents, apparently. And um, so we did that. And I, I mean, I probably started there about halfway through the fall of whatever year it was. I think it was like 2002. Um, and I finished about halfway through my, I think it was my junior year of high school. But um <clears throat> Actually, maybe my senior year, frankly. Maybe I graduated a semester early. But the point is, is that was 20 years ago. And as I'm filling out my UC application, it's like, what was the time frame that you went to high school? And it's like, oh, shit, I just don't know. So I, originally I had guesstimated about what it was, but I thought I'd really be fucking pickled if, you know, those types of inconsistent. Like, if they, if they happen to pull my record and the dates are inconsistent, you don't want to... I don't know. You, wanna, you don't want to invalidate your application. So I actually took the effort of calling this place and leaving them a message telling them my name, saying, hey, uh, I was there like 20 years ago. I'm just wondering if you happen to have a record of my enrollment, which they did. But what, you know, what's so fucking crazy about the school is that it was basically an alternative high school for truant kids. 
So even though my brother and I were not truant, we were going to school with a lot of people who were, um, you know, in some phase of the uh, correction system. They were on probation. Uh, they were, uh, you know, expelled from their previous schools. You know, they had truancy problems. They wouldn't go to regular. They just, they, they, a lot of them couldn't function in a regular school environment. <clears throat> so it was just a lot of chaos and disorder. Um, and it was just so crazy. Twenty years later, to call this, and I, you know, I get the secretary on the phone, and she's saying shit like, "And first of all, I was, I couldn't believe it. The secretary or whoever I'm speaking with is like yelling at kids over the phone, and I'm just thinking, what are kids doing at school anyway? Like, isn't everything supposed to be remote? But she's saying things like, uh, uh, she said, "Lashawn, put that down." And Angie, you're in trouble. As she's like trying to like talk to me, and it's like she, it felt like a scene from Kindergarten Cop, where she's just like yelling. I'm picturing like high school, high school kids just like running around in circles around this person, and it's just like fucking chaos. Like something's never changed. But it brought me back to that time period where I was going to school there, and uh, I remember the first day I showed up at school. This kid just comes up to me and he goes, "What side you claiming?" And I was like, what? And he's like, what side you claiming? This north side Sugar Hill. And I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't realize he was saying, like, what, what, like, what neighborhood am I repping? Like, what gang am I a part of? And I was like, oh, dude, I don't bang, dude. <laughs> and he was like, oh, that's what's up. <laughs> but it was like, uh, it was just a very surreal experience for me. <clears throat> I remember, I don't know how it happened, but, you know, I don't know if you can tell us about your boy, but I'm not really a uh, combative person. But I do remember, you know, I was one of the few people who was going to school there who had a car. And so we would get this lunch break and, you know, we would sort of disperse away from this school area out to all the, you know, there was like a Taco Bell nearby. There was just a lot of places that people could go for lunch. And I used to take a couple people with me. And I remember there were these two girls who used to kind of you know, roll with me at lunch, you know, cause I happen to have a car. So they want to get off campus. So they're nice to me. And we go, we go get lunch or something along with some other people. But, um, I think one, this one guy I went to school with, his name was Abraham. He was not fucking happy about it. And I remember, I don't know he, how he and I got into it or whatever, or how these girls even got involved. But for some reason there was some beef between me and Abraham. I don't think he liked me rolling with these girls that he was kind of, I don't know, had claimed for himself or whatever. Um, and I don't even know how tension like rose between me and these girls, but I happened to be at a fucking guitar center one day. I remember being in the acoustic guitar room of guitar center and my phone rings and it's one of these girls and she's like, Abraham's going to fuck you up. And I was like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so I get all pissed. I hop in my car. I drive back to school and I basically just burst in the door and I start yelling, where the fuck is Abraham? Where the fuck is Abraham? And it's like, I don't know what I thought I was going to do if he actually was there. I guess, I, I don't know, I probably just wanted to yell at him. I, I, I think I thought I was going to fight him, but um, who knows, maybe I knew that he wasn't there and I just wanted to fucking, I don't know, posture or whatever the fuck. But um, uh, thankfully he wasn't there. But I guess he caught wind of that, <clears throat> knew I wanted to squabble or whatever. He showed up the next day with uh, a friend of his, who I guess was going to be his backup, but he was waiting for me in the parking lot uh, for lunch. And I just remember... Uh, he and his friend just sort of leaning up against the car, waiting for everybody to kind of pull out of the school for lunch. And, uh, I just saw him standing there. I just, and I, I, like, I remember, I don't remember her name, but I remember one of the younger teachers kind of knew what was going on. She kind of intercepted me when I showed up to campus and was like, where the fuck is Abraham? Uh, she was the one who kind of stopped me and cooled me down and said, Hey man, chill out. Um, and I think it was, uh, I think she noted it also cause it was really exceptional for me. Like who the, what the fuck? This is your boy, you know, not a fighter. Why the fuck is he showing up at school like he wants to fucking fight somebody? So I think she was sort of tipped on it. But she comes out and there were some other kids from school who are kind of waiting to see if this fucking fight happened. But, you know, there's a couple people who follow me out just kind of see if shit goes down. And I basically just walk up to the guy and I put my hand out. And I'm like, hey, man, let's just let's just squash this. This is fucking stupid, right? Um, and it was so funny because it was like, you know, he was probably, I mean, we were probably both 16, at the time, and even as it's happening, you know, you think you both are a lot older. Like, in, in my mind at the time, I sort of probably just imagined we were both, like, in our early 20s. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, even with when you're young, you sort of think of yourself as an adult. You sort of look at your peers as adults in some ways. It's not until you're older and you see people who are at that age that you realize how fucking young you were. But now I look back on that time and I say, oh, we were both fucking kids. And even though he kind of ran with a rougher crowd, and even though he acted a lot tougher, 
I can also look back on that time period and realize, oh, he was just a fucking young guy. You know, and he he was being tough with me because he felt like he had to act tough. But I could see, not that I fully registered it at the time, but now that I think about it and I think about how I experienced that, I realized, oh, he was fucking scared. You know, and it has nothing to do with me. I'm not a very intimidating person if you've ever met me, but it was just the idea of getting in a fight. You know, and he brought his friend as backup, not that he fucking needed, and I'm sure the guy could have kicked my ass, but when I walked over to him and shook his hand, you know, he maintained this sort of posture but I remember feeling this palpable sense of relief from him, which was like, oh, shit. Oh, thank Christ. <laughs> you know, and he was like, all right, man, cool. All right, cool, 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 cool. But we never fucking discussed it again. I think we both were like, we did our man dance. We did our fucking social posture thing of like, we had to act like we were going to kick each other's ass. But the truth is, neither of us wanted to fucking fight. You know, it's just something that you sort of get peer pressured into. You know, you don't want to lose face. And I don't even know what set the thing off, but it was like those girls calling me and saying that this dude was going to fuck me up. I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah. I immediately went into like movie mode. Who knows? Maybe I had just seen Fight Club or some shit, but it was like <sighs> such a weird time. A lot of weird stuff too, especially for me. Like I've never been in a fight fight, but I've seen so many fights. I mean, the people I used to run with all the time were just scrappy dudes. I mean, the thing that, you know, when I try to think about the, you know, the group of friends that I used to roll with, the story that just sort of sums up who they were, and not like their totality as human beings, but just kind of where, you know, that, that sort of late teens, early 20 mentality of where those guys were at, and what their dynamic was growing up. And I think a lot of it had to do with being from Arizona, um, which is they were scrappy. And I say Arizona, because when I moved out to California, you know, it was, it was just a completely different vibe. You know, and I'm sure other parts of the country are this way too, but it's like in Arizona, when you go out to parties, when you go out to the bar, at a certain time, fights start. You know, and that's just the way it is. Like when the bars get out, people start fighting. When you go to parties past a certain time, there's gonna or, or there's a critical mass, if there's enough people there, someone's gonna get in a fight, and it's just the way it is. Um and when that didn't happen in California, I was just really surprised. Um, not because I ever really participated in those things, but because I was a witness to so much of it, it was just a surprise to me. But in terms of that mentality, I mean, in terms of how inevitable it was, I mean, I remember hanging out with this group of kids that I always hung out with. The first time I ever hung out with them, um, or maybe at the end of a, I don't know, I was home for vacation uh, around Christmas break one time. I was going to this boarding school, and I remember towards the end of that trip, we'd probably been hanging out with this group of people for like two weeks, and I remember you know, we're at some party. We had been to a party the week before where there was some beef with the guy who was hosting it. And all of a sudden someone calls and says, oh, so-and-so from the other party says, fuck you guys. And uh, if you guys ever want to fucking uh, throw down, it's gonna, it's time to fucking throw down. So everybody just gets in cars as a big group of people. We mob over to that house. And basically there was a fight in the street. And one of the dudes that we hang out with gets stabbed with a Leatherman blade. And he's okay. He doesn't need to go to the hospital. But it was just like, I was like 15 at the time. And some dude that we were rolling with got stabbed with a Leatherman blade in a fight. Um, You know, there were plenty of times where we saw guns get pulled out or guns get fired in the air or whatever the fuck. And it was just like, I mean, the the scene that I'm thinking of that I think kind of sums them up is I remember one time being at this apartment party, which I'm assuming other parts of the country are like this, or maybe it's just indicative of the age that we were but it was like there were so many parties going on it wasn't about you know who you really knew it was always like a six degrees of separation thing but it was like you would just say where are the parties at you start calling around there's a party over at this apartment complex there's a party at this person's house and sometimes you would just find yourself at a party where you fucking didn't know who the people were who owned the place it was just something you heard of so it's like there was probably half a dozen of us uh maybe even fewer actually maybe four of us who show up at this apartment party. We don't know who the fuck owns this place. It's not even our scene. Like this was sort of a very collegey, brohy, uh, fratty kind of scene. And none of the none of the people that I was hanging out with had gone to college. And so we're hanging out at this apartment complex and we're just sitting in the living room. And two of my guy friends who were kind of the senior members of our group, like they happened to rent 
the house, you know, we, it was like we had five or six friends who rented this house that that was the house we all sort of congregated at every night. That was like the hub of our social group. Well, two of those guys are sitting on the living room just drinking a beer. They're looking around saying, yo, man, fuck this party. We don't know anybody here. And I remember he just looks at his friend. You know, one of my friends looks at the other one and says, hey, man, you want to get in a fight? <laughs> and my friend was like, sure. And so my friend just looks down at the coffee table, grabs it, and just flips it over in the middle of the fucking living room. Just grabs it and flips it over and just waits for somebody to do something. And it was like, that's a fucking crazy thing to do. And of course, the people who own the apartment or who are renting the apartment, who are throwing this party, you know, they kind of feel like the need to do something, but they don't really want to get in a fight. It's just not their vibe. So they're basically begging my friends and by extension me to just leave the party, which we do. Thankfully, there's no fight. But it was like, that's just kind of, <laughs> that was the dynamic of the group that I ha- that I hung out with. And, uh, you know, that's, that is, I mean, that is completely at odds with who I am as a person. Um, but that was my social circle for a long time, for maybe, I guess like six or seven years of my life. And, um, uh, and I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I had that experience. I mean, some of those people are still people I stay in touch with who are very near and dear to my heart. And, and also it's, it's also been good to see that, you know, life is long. You know, there's so many people that I used to hang out with that I used to think were just lost causes, um, you know, who have grown up to be, you know, maybe in some ways better put together than I am. You know, they have beautiful families, they have kids, they're responsible. Um, but it just shows you how long life is. I mean, people change. I mean, I'm thinking of one of my friends in particular, the last time I saw him, um, before when I moved out to the Bay Area, the last time I saw him, I was just sort of driving around town, who knows where I was going. But he was just on the sidewalk, clearly inebriated out of his mind, looked like he was in a blackout, just kind of stumbling down the street. And I didn't even engage him. I mean, he was kind of lost at that time. Uh, complicated story, but just, you know, just someone I had known who I was formerly very close with, who was just kind of estranged from all of us and just kind of seeing him and just thinking, it, was, it, would, it, would, it would almost be like seeing someone that you used to know or hang out with just kind of being homeless on the street or coming up to you asking you for change. You know, it was just like, oh shit, what happened to that person, you know? And then years later, saw him at a wedding. They were sober, had been sober for a long time, were married, had kids. And it was just like, life is long. I mean, for some reason, the person I'm thinking of is the comedian Joey Diaz, you know, who's sort of a, I don't know, kind of a leading character or at least part of the crew of the whole, you know, Joe Rogan slash your mom's house ecosystem of podcasts. But um, one thing I have been seeing on YouTube is he's been doing... Uh, Ryan Sickler, the comedian, has the the Honeydew podcast, and Joey Diaz, who's you know, if you've seen any Joey Diaz content, you know, all he does is really talk about his past life. But on the Ryan Sickler podcast, this Honeydew podcast, he sort of goes through his whole life story in installments, and you know, to hear it kind of anthologized that way or told that lin- linearly, you know, to just hear what somebody goes through from just like abject life, a crime, criminal, drug addicted, living on the streets. Uh, hustling for money, ripping people off, kidnapping people, going to jail, to like getting out, starting in stand-up comedy, doing movies, still being a dr- still being drug addicted, having this super crazy life, to kind of growing up to being a pretty self-actualized person. Uh, maybe not the type of person that you would want to be in life, but you know, it has a successful career in entertainment. Um, it just shows you that life is long. You know, you never, I mean, it sort of makes me think about my, sort of makes me think about my life and creativity, you know, and by extension, you just think about whether it's my, my work as a crisis line counselor or even my own experience in therapy, you know, but just thinking about mental health in general, um, uh, the mental health profession in general, which is you just, or even thinking about my, you know, the, the, the brief experience I've had in recovery, which is you just never know. You know, you never know, you can never really count people out and you, and, you, and even people who are showing a lot of promise, you just, life is long. You never know where people are going to end up. You know, there's people I've met in my creative life who, you know, you just thought were destined for greatness, who you never fucking hear from. And then there are people who show no promise, who enough time goes by and they fucking skyrocket to success or something like that. And 
I think that's true of no matter where you're at in life. You know, one of the things I did when I was doing music, um, which now that I think about it, maybe I should look into, but there's an organization called Bread and Roses, um, which is a nonprofit here in the Bay Area, and they bring performance and music and entertainment to people who are isolated from society. And that covers a lot of ground. That's people who live in uh, senior citizen homes. That's people who live... Uh, who are incarcerated, people who are um, in residential drug rehab facilities, you know, anybody who's isolated from society who could use some entertainment, this organization brings entertainment to them. And it's singers, musicians, um, who the fuck knows? Maybe some tap dancers. (laughs) I don't know what their whole ecosystem of entertainment is, but, you know, a handful of my music friends uh, used to do this as sort of a volunteer thing, something that, you know, it sounds nice to do something good, but in actual fact... You know, the performances I did with Bread and Roses were some of the most fulfilling performances I ever did. And, um, you know, when they contacted me, um, you know, I said, the only people I'm interested in playing for are people in recovery and people who are incarcerated. Um, And the niche that I found was sort of playing for people in recovery, partly because I had my own experience, but also, you know, there was just something about those performances and those audiences where, you know, I don't know if every everybody felt this way, but for me, you know, those people really listened. And I think especially because the music I make was so confessional, and I think I happen to be very personable, and I think I, um, you know, whatever my temperament is as a person and performer, you know, I didn't, I think those people didn't feel judged. You know, I was able to play those um, facilities and kind of endear myself to people and hopefully perform well, but also... Um, really have an impact and also really connect with people. I mean, one thing I would always do is, um, and it was actually spawned by the first time I played at this one place. I don't want to say what it's called, but it's a residential um, uh, rehab facility in Berkeley, California. And I remember when I showed up, you know, the space they had me playing at, you could sort of look out and see this patio. And and if you know anything about recovery, everybody smokes. And so you have everybody on, in this residential facility out on the patio and everybody's getting their cigarettes and, bef- you know, whatever they're ending, which may have been like group meditation <laughs> before the performance, which is what people are showing up for to see me, everybody's just getting their cigarettes in. And I see one dude out there playing guitar. And so I think, oh, if this dude shows up, I'm going to ask him if he wants to play. Um, and so I play, you know, probably three quarters of my set. I probably have like two or three songs left. And I just say... You know, I, you know, and, and, you know, I'm, uh, rapping with the crowd and there's sort of banter between songs and just kind of talking with people. And, and, uh, I don't know, the mood was feeling right. And I just remember asking this person, I said, Hey, you know, before I, when I first showed up, I looked out on the patio, I saw you playing guitar. Would you like to play something for the group? And, um, it was just a really touching moment, you know, where you could tell it really felt vulnerable for them. They didn't really want to do it, but you know, this is a group of people who have been, you know, in meetings together, for the last, you know, few weeks, ostensibly. And, and it was just kind of a, you know, I'm sure you can imagine a lot of people who are in recovery, a lot of the conversation, excuse me, is how their drug use, excuse me, is how their drug use has taken them away from things that they're passionate about. And for a lot of people, that's their creativity. And so I'm, I'm just guessing that this was something that kind of came up in their conversations, but, um, you know, the group was very supportive. And so they went up there and played a song. um, And it was just, (laughs) you know, more than anything I did, that was really the highlight of the night, you know, for that person to get up there and perform, which I think was something that they had wanted to do for a long time, or something that they had let get away from them because of their drug use, that here was an opportunity that they weren't expecting that now they could perform. Um, Why am I saying all this? Um... Yes. <laughs> I don't even know how we got on this whole topic. Um, bread and roses, playing for people. Yeah, what can I say? I don't know. I, I guess I can just go with where my thoughts are right now, which is, you know, I remember leaving, I don't know if it was that performance specifically. Oh, yeah, life is long. Um, I'll just say this, though. You know, there were times leaving those performances, especially at that one facility. Every time I played there, that that, that there's something about that space that really... Um, you know, those performances were particularly fulfilling. And I remember thinking, I wish all of my performances felt this way. You know, there were shows I played where I was opening for, you know, this artist, or I was playing at that sold out, 
uh, venue opening for that person, which was like always a dream of mine. And that was always cool, but it was so ephemeral. It was like, once it was over, it was like, it never really happened. And there's, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. You know, some of it's personal. That's partly my constitution. You know, I'm very dismissive of, you know, the small successes that I have had, but I do remember very palpably feeling after I left that, I said, here's this performance I did at this recovery center that nobody will ever see. You know, these are not things that you share to social media. These are things that just sort of happen. But I remember leaving and feeling like if I, if all, if I could leave every performance I did feeling the way I feel now, I could be happy. You know, not that I would be successful as other people think about it. You know, I mean, I volunteered my time. I'm not making money. This, it's not something that you can really make a living doing, but I just thought, you know, I really need to absorb how I'm feeling right now because this is happiness. And I think it was one of the first times that I really, I don't want to say thought about it this way for the first time, but it, it was like, I, I really, you know, there's certain bells that when you ring them, they can't be un, unrung. And there's certain thoughts that once you have, you can't unthink them. And it was one of those moments where I, I noticed how I was feeling and I was acknowledging how I was feeling. And I was like, you know, you really have to take this seriously because I've had this very serious thought, which is, oh, wow, there's a, in terms of my happiness quotient, in terms of my, you know, my uh, quantifiable level of happiness and, and, and feeling fulfilled, there's something very different about what I get out of this versus what I get when I'm pursuing my other creative endeavors. You know, when I'm trying to get X number of streams on Spotify, which by the way, one of my original songs just got a million streams on Spotify. So that's not nothing. That's something to be proud of. But, you know, that's just, that's something that, you know, before it happens, I think, oh, when I get a million streams on an original song of mine on Spotify, then I'll be happy. You know, then I'll feel like a success. Well, that happened. I mean, I've, I mean, your boy has had over 25 million streams on Spotify probably, but I just mean, you know, just today I saw that one of my original songs has over a million streams on Spotify now. And it doesn't feel like anything. It's cool. It's something to say and it's something I think about and it's, it's not nothing, but it doesn't feel like anything to me. And yet when I think about those performances that I did at this recovery center, I, I remember leaving and thinking, this feels good. You know, this feels like happiness. And it's not that you can bottle it up and feel that way forever, but it was just something to think about. Like, wow, you feel good after this. I don't know that I've ever felt this way after any other show that I've played. Um, you know, and it's not that anything decisive happens in that moment, but it's just, as I reflect on it, I think, well, maybe it's not so surprising that I've shifted away from, a, you know, focusing on my creative career to, um, you know, considering seriously a career in mental health. At least that's where my education's pointed. Um, but the whole reason that even came up is I was just talking of that life is long. You know, I was saying, you know, coming from a certain... Um, group of friends who were scrappy and, you know, you think you know where people are headed or you think you know what people's lives are going to turn out like, and you just have no fucking clue. And, uh, I mean, I remember one time playing at this facility and one of the facilitators who was someone I connected with, um, an interesting moment. I mean, I was working in food service at the time. That was like how I made money to, to pay bills was I worked at restaurants. And I remember maybe a year after my first performance at this space, one of the facilitators came in with their partner and I had sort of forgotten about it, but he said, Oh, you're so-and-so, aren't you? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, Oh, I facilitated at this one place. And, you know, I remember your performance and that was something, you know, normally after the performance, he said they have some kind of meditation debriefing thing. And he said, and we just, we spent the whole time, you know, we spent that hour just talking about your performance. And it was something that really touched a lot of people. And it was just, uh, you know, for me, it was really rewarding to hear that. Um, you know, fast forward to maybe another year later, you know, this person who's facilitating at a recovery center themselves supposed to be in recovery, um, you know, he's drinking again and, you know, that's fine. I'm not judging this person. 
uh, you know, your boy has been sober and not sober at intervals as well. There's been times where I wasn't drinking and then I got back on the sauce. Um, uh, and now I haven't had, I haven't ingested a mind altering substance in over three years, maybe almost four years now. Um, you know, is that going to be my life forever? I don't know, but that's where I'm at right now. So I'm not giving this person a hard time. I'm just saying, you know, recovery is a particularly good example of just never being sure. You know, life is long, life is dynamics, you know, sometimes we're doing really well, sometimes we're struggling. And just because you're on top today doesn't mean you're going to be on top tomorrow. You know, one day you may be at a time in your recovery where you're facilitating, you're, you know, you're, you're working as a re- as, at a residential drug rehab, rehab facility, and who knows how long you do that for, and then the next day you've relapsed, you know, and um, yeah, I'm not sure what the point that arises from all that is. Except, <laughs> except I don't know, man. Life is weird. I mean, in other episodes, I've talked about friends of mine who, you know, maybe part of this whole coronavirus thing is just seeing how people deal with it, you know, especially as polarized as we've gotten with the whole political thing. You know, I have friends of mine who are formerly pretty liberal who, for whatever fucking reason, since Trump fucking came into office, they become these sort of alt-right advocates, Trump supporters, which is fucking strange to me. But, uh... But such is life. I guess it's it's hard though too. For some reason I'm thinking about... I think maybe we touched on this in other episodes, but I think it's hard because, you know, wherever people are at in their journey, you know, whatever that means, it's, it's hard to not... It's, not... it's hard not to judge them against who they've been in the past. And even when people are doing well, right? I guess I'm thinking of this in two ways. So, you know, people can be like, I'm thinking of, one, I'm thinking of one person in particular who, according to one standard, is someone that I grew up with who's doing very, very well. They live out here in the Bay Area also. Um, you know, they have found some success in the financial sector, in venture capital. They've co-authored some, you know, some pretty famous books. And yet, as I've stayed in touch with this person, or especially through social media, I've just kind of seen the types of, the type of worldview they seem to have and adopt and advocate for and want for other people, you sort of, you sort of judge them. And there's a part of me that I remember when this person was just kind of a, a dorky teenager, right? Who I sort of thought was kind of square. And there's a part of me that goes, Hey man, get off your fucking high horse. You think you're so-and-so? I remember when you were X, right? And I think that, but that's, that's not really fair either. You know, because on on the other side, there's like, I have friends of mine now who were formerly very scrappy, didn't have a lot of, didn't seem to have a lot of prospects. And honestly, if you had to lay bets when, when you were 19, how far this person would come or what they would accomplish, you probably wouldn't put a lot of money down. And yet they've gone on to become, you know, uh, you know, productive contributing members of society who are, you know, they've always been good people. Um, for some reason, I'm thinking of the YouTube personality, Larry Lawton, who says, you know, he doesn't believe in bad people. He believes in bad choices. Well, there, there's something to that, right? Um, you know, there were people I, I grew up with who were not bad people. They just happened to be making bad choices. And a lot of that, frankly, was informed by how they were raised and the type of behavior that was demonstrated for them. But um, the point of all this is, you know, it's not really fair to hold people against the standard of who they used to be. Right. And the, 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 I think the first time there was, this was ever sort of articulated for me was, you know, um, you know, throughout my whole life, I've been into religion, even as an atheist. And I still consider myself an atheist and a skeptic. I've always been interested in just religious belief and the religious worldview and whether it's, uh, Scientology or Mormonism or, or, um, Seventh-day Adventist. I've, I've just, I've spent a lot of time with different religious groups reading about religion, reading about theology, just all sorts of stuff. It's just always been an interest of mine. And I remember I stumbled on this multi-series. There's maybe like 13 episodes, maybe even more. Excuse me, each one an hour long called Does God Exist? And it's sort of narrated and it's sort of like a, it's almost like Cosmos. You know, the Carl Sagan series about, um, uh, about, uh, astronomy and uh, cosmology and all that sort of shit, but it was a 13-part educational series 
by a pastor called Does God Exist? And in his mind, this was a 13-part series that clearly demonstrated the scientific proof that for God, the scientific proof for... So it's like a lot of religious things where it's posed as a question, even though you can anticipate the answer they provide. So it's like if you ever get handed The Watchtower or um, Awake, you know, one of these proselytizing magazines that the Jehovah's Witnesses or the, or the Mormons will give you, you know, the cover is always a question. Like it'll say, is there an afterlife with a question mark? Well, if the Mormons are fucking handing it to you, you can guess what the goddamn answer is. But that's what this series was like. It was, does God exist, question mark? And here was his 13-part ex- scientific proof for why God exists. Now, you can guess it's not scientific, right? But it still sticks with me. Um, for two reasons. One, he tells this story, which is fucking crazy, which is he used to be an adamant atheist and he used to make fun of religion. And he thought he was going to sit down and write a book called all the stupid things in the Bible. So he picked up the Bible and he started reading it with this lens. I'm going to read this Bible. I'm going to find all the stupid things in it. And I'm going to write a book called all the stupid things in the Bible. And he says, he read it cover to cover, didn't find a stupid thing in it. So he flipped it over and read it again didn't find a stupid thing in it. Then he read it again. And by the third time he read it cover to cover, he was convinced that this was the the holy word of God, etc. That's his conversion story, which is a bunch of bullshit. But here is the part of that series that sticks with me that I still think about and I think is very important. He says that he was formerly an atheist. He was formerly against religion and he was very vocal about it. That's the story he tells. And he says that now that he's a pastor, all the time, he encounters people in his life. You know, it sounds like he grew up in this rural community where everybody fucking knows each other. So it makes sense that you would, you know, live alongside people who knew, who've known you your entire life, have seen all your iterations, etc. But he says all the time he runs into people who say, you know, you act like you're high and mighty. You act like you're full of the spirit now. But I remember when you were so-and-so. I remember when you thought all this was nonsense. So don't act like you're fooling me. And he talks about how unfair that is. You know, it's true that we, whatever experience we have of some people, we, we have experienced them in this narrow lane of whatever time we had with them. And it could be, you know, we went to preschool through 12th grade with somebody before they went off to college. Or maybe we knew someone when they were in college. Or maybe we're meeting someone in the middle of their life where they're drug addicted, down and out. They lost their wife. They lost their kids. And whatever experience we have with somebody, we think we know them. But the truth is, life is long. And it doesn't matter who somebody was to you at some point in their life. They are who they are today. And it doesn't mean that that person is objectively better. But it was his acknowledging that it was unfair, even though I disagree with who he is, right? He's an evangelical pastor who, you know, trying to give sign, you know, for uh, intelligent design, right? For ID, he's trying to make this 13-part series sort of proving that there's scientific proof of God's existence, which is not true. But there was something about the way he phrased it that's always stuck with me. You know, it was unfair for people. You know, people don't want you to, to be better. You know, people always want to keep you in a box and define you by how they used to think of you, how they used to see you. And to see you trying to do something different, people just want to fucking tear you down. And I think about that because I'm very judgmental. (laughs) I am fucking very judgmental. And all the time I see people living parts of their life where I think, hey man, fuck you. I remember when you were so-and-so. I remember when you were that way. Don't act like, you're not fucking fooling anybody, man. I know who you really are. That's how we treat people. I know who you really are. And I see the fucking charade you're doing and I see right fucking through it. That's how we treat people oftentimes, but I don't know. I guess the point is that you never know. You think you knew someone when they were a kid. You think you know who someone is now, but you never know who they're going to be. And I don't know. I'm trying to come up with a summary statement about all this, but you know, maybe the truth is, is that we're all those things. Although on the one hand, <laughs> Do you ever look back on life? And actually, I think I heard Donald Trump say this, which is kind of weird, but I happen to agree with it too, which is, you know, you kind of look back on your life and even though the, even though the scenery changes, aren't you kind of who you are? No matter, you know, even if you've been evangelized and joined a religion on a long enough timeline, don't you kind of settle back into who you were? You know, if you're sort of strong-willed or, 
uh, cantankerous or sort of, you know, lazy or I don't know, whatever you are as a kid, isn't that kind of who you are? How much of that stuff really changes? So who knows? Um, yeah, I'm not sure what the lesson of all this is, except there's something about that. You know, it's very easy for us to hold people, try to hold people accountable to who we knew them as at another time in their life and sort of assume that that's the truth. And to see, you know, in another way, it's, you know, when I think about my friends who were very scrappy and, um, you know, drank a lot to see, it's almost like I, I see them as like performing, you know, there's, a, I almost feel like there's a performative aspect to them being good contributing members of society, but that's not, that's not entirely fair. You know, people get to be whatever they do. You know, it's not my idea. I think Adam Carolla said this, who said, you know, you can be an arsonist, but if you never, like, you can be a full-fledged uh, pyromaniac, but if you never set a fire, who gives a fuck? You know, there's something about the whole social justice warrior that in a way I always come back to my experience of, you know, the time I spent with religious groups of people, which is there's this idea now that thoughts are crimes. You know, what you think is a crime. That's something that you should be held held, uh, accountable for. I don't know that that's true. I think the only thing we should really care about is what people do. You know, I thought about this in my own life. It's like, if, if all I want to do is wake up and get high and eat pepperoni pizza and drink 30 packs of beer and just watch movies all day, that's, that's fine. If that's what I do, that's who I am. But even if that's what I want to do, if all I do is get up and run eight miles and eat three square meals a day and uh, get straight A's in school and work 40 hours a week and pay my bills, that's who I am. That's who I get to be. Right, so I, I don't know what the answer is. It's just like something to, something to think about. Whatever you do, that's who you get to be. Now, is it who you are in your heart of hearts? Maybe not. You know, but if you never act on those things, is that really who you are? I don't know. Just something to think about. Who are we? Are we our thoughts, or are we the things that we do? Um. Maybe we are our thoughts, but. Maybe it just doesn't matter. Maybe the only thing that really matters is what we do. So, um, yeah. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, motherfuckers. Uh, If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, Yes, take a minute. Rate and review us. Give us five stars. This was a fairly good episode. Started off kind of strange, but uh, I'm happy where we ended up. If you like this kind of content, go ahead and give us a five-star review. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast And if you can think of someone in your life who you think would like this quality of conversation, uh, go ahead and send them your favorite episode. Um, uh, Hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, I, myself, am focusing on uh, work and school, sort of the last push before finals. But uh, I'm excited for the Christmas vacation. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what the next month and a half will be like with my girlfriend gone. Who knows? Your boy might be going fucking crazy like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Uh, But if I am, it'll be good content for the show. So stay tuned. Subscribe to the show if you haven't. Until the next episode, thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now.